0: like lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated hello hello you guys hear me out there yeah all right good deal uh hi my name is jeremy Olam. uh dave um told you that 10 minutes ago you probably forgot so i thought i'd remind you um I'm uh, one of the pastors at Redemption Church, along with uh, Dave and Stephen, which is my honor. I uh, am part of the community ministries team at Redemption Gilbert. We have two guys that oversee um, all of our small groups, small group leaders, um, and our leadership development. And I'm one of those two guys. Uh, I really love my job. I've gotten to know Dave over the last couple years. Um, through our pastors' collectives that we do once a month at the church. And then in the last year, in particular, in being in seminary with Dave, which has been really great. And there was an email that went out a couple, I don't know if it was a month or two ago, saying, hey, would anybody be willing to come and teach? And I jumped on the opportunity. I love to see what God is doing through his church uh, around the state. And I am particularly passionate about what God's doing in Redemption Church. I think there are great things happening here, and uh, I was really excited to be able to come with my wife uh, down and be with you guys. So I'm excited to be here today. A little bit about us. My wife, Rachel, who's sitting here in the front. She's the pretty one in the middle. Um, she, her and I have been married for 15 years. We have two little boys, um, Asher and Beck. Um, those are cool names. Feel free to steal them if you'd like them. Um, one, Asher is seven and a half. He's going into second grade on Wednesday. And Beck is three and insane. Uh, and they're a lot of fun. We love our boys. Rachel and I grew up in North Dakota in a rural town of 350 people. Uh, I know it's surprising looking at how cool I look, but it's possible. Um, For that to happen, we got married when we were 22. We loaded a U-Haul three days later, and we spent every penny of our wedding money uh, on that U-Haul and on the gas to drive to Arizona, Uh, and we've been in Phoenix for 15 years now uh, as a married couple, almost all of that in Gilbert. Um, About 13 years ago, we bought our first house. I wanted to honor my time, and so this is going to be awkward, but I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm setting my little stopwatch. Pastor Secrets, don't let it out. Okay, so um, I'm not even good at it. I just screwed it up somehow. There we go. Okay, so about 13 years ago, we bought our first house. We were a young married couple, and we, we bought a house, and we were really excited about it. We've been in the same house the entire time. And probably four years ago, I was out in the about this time of year. It's deadly hot outside. Uh, and my son came out in the front yard with me. And we have kind of a large front yard. And we do the environmentally terrible thing of having grass out there, uh, which in July is horrible because you have to mow it. And so I was out there. And my son, he's probably three at the time. And he's playing. He has a little plastic mower. He's pretending to mow. And I do that first lap around the outside of the lawn. And I come around for the second lap. And as I come around for the second lap, there's this small electrical box kind of in the front yard there. I don't know if you've seen these little plastic things where your electrical stuff is housed. Or I, Let's be honest, I have no idea what's in there. That's my assumption that that's what's in there. And as I come around, I hear a horrible sound. It is buzzing, and it is loud buzzing, and I am suddenly attacked by a swarm of bees. Just enveloped in a swarm of bees. I'm getting stung left and right. I instantly turn into Chris Farley from Tommy Boy, where he's like, the bees, the bees. I'm the big fat guy in the front yard, swinging his arms like an insane person. And I, I cannot get them away from me. And so I'm running all over the place like crazy, and eventually I make it over to the front of my yard, and I'm yelling at my son, get in there! and uh, I grab the hose off the side of the uh, house and I turn it on and I'm dousing myself with water because it's the only thing that will get this angry hive of bees off of me. I get stung, I don't know, 10 or 12 times and then I make it inside and I call Rachel, she was at work and I'm like, I just got attacked by a bunch of bees and my face is going numb. If I don't call you in 10 minutes, call an ambulance. It was a very exciting time. I'm fine, don't worry it's okay now what I had to do after about a half hour I gathered myself and I was like oh you know what I left the lawnmower just sitting out in the front yard I gotta go deal with that and so I open the door and I go out in the front yard and the what I see is the lawnmower sitting alone in the grass and the cloud of bees attacking the lawnmower and I just like stood there and watched it and I was like nope and I went back in the house and closed the door and that was it so now I, have, I figure I have a few options on how to deal with the bees right I, I can do a couple of things number one I can ignore the problem and I can say, you know what, this is just some perfect storm of coincidence. This is a one-time issue that happened. And if I just ignore it, it'll be this one moment where me and the bees came together. A collision of fate, maybe you'll call it. It's not going to happen again. Don't worry about it. Except we all know that's not true. After all, my lawnmower's in the front yard. I have to go back out there. I'll probably get attacked by the bees again. Even if I wait a while, most likely... The problem will have blossomed, and now the beehive will become some kind of zeppelin of hate in the front yard, and will produce more bees, Um, and I don't know, I'll walk into a death cloud the next time out there. So that's probably not a great option. The second option is I can try to make these bees a part of my life, right? I can decide, you know what, I like the bees. The bees are misunderstood. In society, I'm sick of the way they judge bees, Be kind can't be all bad. Sure, they can be dangerous and they can hurt me, but after all, I'm smarter than them. I'm going to get some of that smoke in a can, right? And I'm going to calm them down, and I'm going to bring them in the house with me. (laughs) After all, bees produce something amazingly sweet and delectable called honey, and I like honey. I don't know if you guys have tried it, but it's awesome. I saw a documentary one time about these guys in Nepal that climb a cliff thousands of feet in the air, to harvest rare honey from these honeybees. And these old guys get stung hundreds of times and they've just trained themselves not to worry about getting stung by the bees. I could do that. Someday. <laughs> and over, over time, you know, we'll just let the bees kind of overtake my life and become part of it. They, they will cover our house in honeycombs and I'll get that sweet, sweet nectar anytime I want it. I'll just have to learn with the, live with the stings and hope they don't kill me. But boy, that delicious honey will be worth it, Right? Now, the last option is utter annihilation. I could nuke their home with the savage vengeance that would make the Mongol horde stutter. I wrote this down because there's some good stuff in here, so I'm just going to read it to you. Okay? <laughs> I could bring death and destruction into the place that they have mistakenly thought of as their safe home and make them question the strategic miscalculation that brought them into contact with my towering wrath. I could show them no mercy and make the earth ever forget they existed. I could make their plight legend among the other bees who tell stories for generations as they gather around tiny bee campfires in the dark of the night. I could make them fear my mighty and terrible hand as I remove the queen bee from her throne and burn her throne into an ash heap of sorrow. Guess which option I chose. Now, this kind of scorched earth policy is the surprising prescription that Jesus gives us in this section of Mark that we're talking about today. Jesus, who's full of mercy and grace and kindness, he speaks about this topic in shockingly direct and harsh tones. And on the face of it, it might seem a little out of character for the Jesus that we know. But I think today we're going to look a little closer and see that this violent imagery that's demonstrated is a reflection of the true heart of God and an outpouring of real love for his people. So let's take a look at a few of the scriptures. We're going to start with just the first verse in chapter 9. It's uh, verse 42, and here's what it says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. Now this teaching moment from Jesus opens with an emphatic and loving proclamation of his protection for his people. Now, we don't know specifically who these little ones are. I know when I hear it, I think children. Uh, Jesus also had the habit of talking about his disciples that way, calling them these little ones as he was teaching them. So either way, I think this applies. He's either talking about young children who believe and have trust in him or young believers who have faith and trust in him. And I don't think it matters because God's love for his people, the people that he's chosen out of all people of the earth, is famous and it's jealous and it's intense. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses wrote these words in a song for the Israelites in regard to Jacob, who God famously chose. And it's about God's love for him. And it says, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircles him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. God cares for the people that he loves, those that he's found in the metaphorical wastelands, the people that he's rescued and brought close into a deep, protective relationship. He claims that they are the apple of his eye. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually didn't really know what that meant, so I did a little looking. Apparently, that's a really clever way of saying the pupil of your eye, right, is the apple of your eye. So God's using this this imagery of his pupil to demonstrate how closely he holds those that he loves. Later, the prophet Zechariah talks about what happens to people who attempt to harm God's people, and he says in Zechariah chapter two, "For thus said the Lord of hosts: After His glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for for her who touches you, touches the apple of His eye." I love this statement because. It talks about the, lo- the depth of the love that God has for the people that he calls his. And when someone harms you, he says it's as if they're walking up to God himself and shoving their finger into his eyeball. It's not exactly something I would recommend. He sounds a lot like the guy who said, man, if somebody did something to hurt my family, they better hope that the police catch him before I do. Right? The guy who says, well, I could never kill anybody And then his buddy says, what if someone broke into your house in the middle of the night and they were going to hurt your family? And then they're like, well, he better have his will up to date, right? Jesus says something very close in relation to how God views the fate that will befall people who harm his family. His protection and love for his kids is deep, and it's jealous, and it's complete. And destruction and justice awaits those who mess with his kids, who mess with his bride. Now, Jesus is doing something here that more than being just violently poetic when he talks about the millstone. Um, I thought the mafia was creative when they invented the concrete boots that they'd throw people in the ocean with, but this is, this is not something that Jesus, Jesus just made up. He, he was referring to a well-known punishment and condemnation that was handed down from the Roman Empire. The millstone that is being talked about is, is something that was used to crush grain and produce flour. Uh, Often at home, you'd have a very small mill uh, that, that the wife of the family most likely would use to grind small amounts of grain to produce flour to break bread for her family. The millstone in question that he's talking about is not one of these. Instead, it's a commercial millstone. It is massive. It is huge. And the only thing that can move it is a mule that has been chained to it to drag it in a circle. Now, the Roman Empire, as it expanded further and further, the overriding concern of the Romans was uprising, right? Revolt, insurrection. The one thing that Rome feared above all was an armed populace rising up against them to overthrow them for freedom. Something we taught the British all about, right? All right, USA, U- i sorry. I get excited sometimes. Uh, Rome... Now, it was very interesting in keeping this kind of behavior under control, and so they employed all kinds of crazy tortures and uh, horrific executions to do that, the most famous of which is the crucifixion, for obvious reason. But it was not the only one. Uh, They were very creative in their brutality. And they had many means to induce fear and kill those who were attempting to war against the empire. And one of them is what Jesus is describing here. The disciples would have been very familiar with this type of punishment. And what Jesus says is this horrific execution would be preferable to have one of these giant millstones tied to your neck and be thrown into the depths of the ocean would be preferable than what would happen if we cause one of these little believers, to sin. To fall in their faith. Jesus makes it clear that that kind of action would be viewed as treason against the kingdom of God and will be dealt with harshly. But for those of us that are within his arms, what a great reminder it is that he loves us. That he protects you like a loving father who would do whatever necessary to protect his children and he has every and all means available for him to do so. And that is a comforting place to be, church, so we should rejoice. Now Jesus quickly moves on from the warning about causing others to sin to dealing with our own indwelt sin. The alternative to causing others to sin is to deal with our own sin, and it it reminds me of when Jesus uses another teaching we find it in Matthew when he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Don't you notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while there's a log in your own? Jesus warns against causing others to sin, but almost immediately he transitions to, what are you going to do about your sin? Before you worry about causing him to sin, what are you doing about your sin? And what Jesus says is that our pursuit of holiness needs to be ruthless. Here's what he says in verses 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than to have two and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I want to be clear right up front, the prescription that Jesus gives here is not to be taken literally. It's not an invitation for self-mutilation. He's not start, starting some kind of weird amputation cult. Instead, he's emphasizing the drastic measures that a disciple should pursue in removing sin and sinful, sinful influences from your life. He calls for a no-holds-barred, attack on sin and the sin nature of man, a steel cage ladder match to the death. Now, 500 years before Jesus was born, thousands of miles away, there's another empire that's rising. It's the great Chinese dynasties that are rising and ruling in the east. And among them, there was a great general, a military strategist, a philosopher that rose to prominence. His name was Sun Tzu. Uh, his thoughts on military strategy have been collected and long published in a book called The Art of War. You might be familiar with it. For 2,500 years, this book has laid out ideas and concepts for warfare that have been used by generals and business people, and it still has an amazingly large influence in the world. It's filled with many pithy thoughts and mindsets and stances about a successful approach to dealing with an enemy force. If Solomon collected thoughts of wisdom, of life and living, then this is the Proverbs of war. As Jesus and his work and his ministry and his teachings are beginning to ramp towards Jerusalem and the conflict that he knows is to come, he begins to teach more and more difficult, difficult teachings about the call of following Jesus. He's talked about denying oneself, about giving up one's life, about following him into suffering in this section about body removal, body part removal strategies isn't new, but it's a deeper look at what these ideas are, as they're actually practiced in the life of the believer. Jesus is describing in even greater and greater detail what it actually entails to deny oneself, to die to oneself. The expectation of real and quantifiable loss isn't something to be surprised about, but to be expected. And Jesus tells his disciples, and by extension us, sitting here this morning, that there is nothing too great to be sacrificed to follow him. Not even our own lives. He's calling for all-out war on sin. And I thought it would be helpful to look at some concrete strategies to help us fight sin. We know it's bad and we know we should get rid of it. How? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a few quotes from Sun Tzu and the Art of War and we're going to tie them into strategies about how I think we can successfully work alongside the Holy Spirit, to weed sin out of our lives. Here's number one. He who wishes to fight must first count the cost. Uh, My son Asher, he's seven and a half. Uh, It seems like once a week we have this conversation. We're at the store. He says, Dad, can I get this? Insert toy, video game, bike, skateboard, whatever here. And I say, no. He says, why not? I say, because it's expensive. And he says why don't you just put it on your credit card? (laughs) Right? The problem here isn't that he doesn't understand it costs money, it's there's a complete misunderstanding of what real cost is. And the easy cost-free gospel is a false gospel. A life dedicated to following Jesus looks like a life of putting your ego to death, to giving up yourself first. And the reason that we preach it is because Jesus preached it. And because we understand it to be true. Freedom is found in slavery when it's slavery to Jesus and to his ways of love. Life is found in death when it's death to self in the service of others. And what we do as a church is to call people to the counterintuitive gospel of giving up for gain. If we preach freedom without cost, then it's not freedom. Instead, it's slavery to unmet expectations. To an unrealistic gospel that doesn't exist. To false hope. When I was in the small town my wife and I grew up in, we went to our little elementary school that went up to 8th grade in this town of 350. We were in a very small class together uh, from the time we were in 6th grade. And, uh, once we graduated out of 8th grade, we had one of these phony baloney 8th grade graduations, which everybody pretends is important and isn't in the least. But the next year, we went off to junior high in the big town down the road, which was about 45, 50,000 people, uh, to Valley Junior High. And I had a dream that when I went to Valley Junior High, I was going to be part of the football team. I thought it was going to be awesome. I was going to go play for them. And I remember talking to my cousin, uh, who had played sports in town, uh, and told him, I'm, dude, I'm going out for the football team this year. It's going to be awesome. I'm mean, probably be a wide receiver. I don't know if you've seen this physique, but I got speed and ups. Sorry. Uh, he says to me, dude, you don't want to do that. I said, what do you mean? It's going to be great. He's like, you know what you've got to do? You've got to do two-a-days. You know what that means? It means you do practice at 6 in the morning and after school. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. The coaches will make you run until you throw up. And I was like, I'm a chubby little kid. I shop in the Husky section at JCPenney. I don't think I'm up for that. And so, I, we had already, my mom, I had already convinced my mom. She, she wrote the check, she signed me up. And I went to her and I was like, Mom, I'm out. She's like, We well, didn't even start yet. I was like, You got to go back to the school so you can get your money back. She did, she got it back, so I felt okay. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes we understand the cost and we fear it. I sat across the table from a husband and wife in a counseling situation recently and I talked at lengths about the call of Jesus to lay down your life for the sake of others but his call for us to do that in our marriages that the death of concern for defending my own value we can find life in valuing our spouse above ourselves and she looked across the table at me with tears in her eyes and she said "I, I know that's what he says But sometimes I'm scared of it. Sometimes I don't believe him. I don't believe that on the other side of my death is life. It was an incredibly honest assessment of her fear of understanding what the call of Jesus is and the cost associated with it. It's not always that we don't understand the cost. It's sometimes that we're just unwilling to pay it. But I think you know. Sometimes I think we talk too much about the cost of following Jesus without doing any actual cost-benefit analysis, right? Uh, they just opened a new restaurant in Gilbert. Um, Gilbert is a sleepy little suburb out on the you know edge of the city, and they opened a Zinburger in Gilbert. So it's like, oh, Zinburger, all right, let's go down to Zinburger. That sounds great. And then I opened the menu. and It's like 14 bucks for a burger with no fries. <laughs> I'm like what? I'm I'm a chubby kid who likes to eat, and I am not too proud to pay $14 for a cheeseburger, but if you're going to give me a $14 cheeseburger, my mind better be exploding when I eat this cheeseburger because around the corner, for $2.40, I can hit up In-N-Out, and I know my head will explode over there. Zenburger disappointed me, but that's not the point. Uh, It's good for us to speak about cost, but I think what Jesus encourages here is a full discussion of the cost. Keeping your hand has a cost. Existing for eternity in an unquenchable fire. Keeping your foot has a cost to be thrown into hell. Keeping your eye has a cost to go to a place where the worms don't die and the fire never goes out. Holding on to our sin and the things that drive us to sin has a cost the loss of our souls. We often talk about the cost that Jesus calls us to without ever admitting the cost of what staying where we are is. The most valuable thing in life is absolutely worthless if it costs you everything. Jim Elliott famously said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We have to think of this as something akin to a retirement investment. That sounds a little small, and it it is, but we have to ask ourselves, why would I ever choose delaying instant gratification with my money today to put it in an account I can't touch for 40 years? Because the reward in 40 years will be massive. That's why. Jesus stresses the infinite value of the soul. It's worth any cost, no matter how great. No price is too high. The other cost-benefit I think that over gets looked is the immediate benefits of an obedient life. The world, and by extension, Christians, look at holiness like dinner salad. Right? Listen, I know it's good for me... Uh I should probably order it. I should probably get the dressing on the side. It's going to be brutal, but I know it's going to make me better, right? It's going to be good for me, but it's torture to live my life like this. That's a lie of the enemy that is aiming to defeat you on the battlefield. Fullness of joy is found in Christ and in his ways. Satisfaction is found in obedience. The reduction in pain and suffering in your life by living in righteousness is invaluable and often overlooked because it's hard to measure. What's the value of relational harmony? How do I measure it? What's the value of a grounded, solid family? What's the value of the care of marginalized people in our society? What's the value of a satisfied soul at rest with God? It's hard to quantify, but we should never forget that following Jesus is costly, but a blessed way to live. It's worth the sacrifice today. The only investment in our life that is worth anything is putting all our eggs in the basket of Jesus. He's worthy of our praise, our lives, our sacrifice. He's worthy of your hand, and your foot, and your eye, should it come to that. It's the same equation that the Apostle Paul was working through mentally when he said this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. So how does what we do actually avoid sin in our life assuming we're not going to cut actual limbs off? Well, let's look at quote number two. Do not swallow bait offered by the enemy. I know my mom and dad are probably going to listen to the audio from this sermon, so mom and dad, I love you, and I am sorry. (laughs) Uh, My parents um, have a timeshare that uh, they got a really good deal on, and it was probably a very wise vacation choice. Timeshares are often not that. The the deal that they got was a really good deal, and I was very proud of them, and they they began to use their timeshare to go on vacations. Uh, And they went to this amazing resort in Mexico with their timeshare vacation. They traded and went to Mexico. You know, I don't know if you know how this thing works, but they go to Mexico and they're having this great thing. And then the timeshare people um, come to you and say, hey, would you like to hear our timeshare presentation? Now, nobody's going to say yes to this because who wants to spend two hours of their life being sucked away into this? So what do they do? They offer you something awesome. Now, I don't remember the exact details of what they offered my parents. We're going to say it was a two-hour jet ski rental, because that sounds like something I would do. (laughs) So they offer them something that gets out there, and by the end of this deal, they have purchased a second (laughs) timeshare. That's why I (laughs) apologize. If you can't avoid the bait, don't get in the game, okay? Okay? Sin almost never arrives fully born in the life of a believer. You don't suddenly wake up in a bank with a gun in your hand and a duffel bag full of money and go, Oh, geez, how did this happen? This is weird, right? (laughs) No, sin is courted and thought about and planned and encouraged in our hearts. If sin presented itself as the fully formed, horrific, egregious beast that it is, we'd run from it and avoid it on the way home from church, you stop for dinner and someone comes up to you and says, hello, I'm interested in having a sexual affair with you today. It will destroy your marriage, damage your children forever, and uh, drive a wedge between you and God. Most likely this will end very badly, probably with you in a depressed state and all alone. Are you interested? Here's my number. Right, you're going to say, um, no, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but that's not the way that it happens. The enemy's more cunning than that. There is bait offered. There are traps laid because it's much easier to fall for small doses of harmless flirting in the office over the course of months and months. It's easier to fall for the small mental fantasies of a better, more exciting life. It's like the dollop of peanut butter smeared on an unloaded mouse trap that the mouse eats and doesn't get killed. And so he comes back the next day for more and doesn't get killed. And he eats and he eats and it tastes good until one day the trap is set and the the bait that once tasted so good and so harmless smashes down on your neck and crushes you. If you struggle with drinking to drunkenness, don't take the bait of just one. If you struggle with lust, don't take the bait of the harmless second look. If you struggle with discontentment, Don't take the bait of HGTV. I love HGTV. It's my confession. Be wary of not just the sin, but of the small, subtle lies that lead you into the snare. Now, as he closes out this section of scripture, Jesus gives us a key insight into one of the strongest weapons we have against sin. So let's read. It's the last section. Here's what it says For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace for one another. Now, salt was a huge part of, of Jesus' society, not just for flavor and high blood pressure like we use it, um, but for preservation and purification. Uh, and here Jesus is telling the disciples that one day everyone would be salted by fire. What does this mean? When well, he's talking about a purification of judgment, then in a moment all that is good will be preserved, and all that is evil will be destroyed and burned off, and it is coming for everyone. He tells us that salt is good, but only as long as it is useful for what it was designed to do. And if it loses the very property that makes it valuable, what value does it have? Church, if we are not a people that are set aside in our own pursuit of righteousness, then what good can we be? We have to encourage and edify each other in the pursuit of avoiding sin And if we fail to do that, to help each other do that, then what are we here for? The church is our base, our place, our safety, our encouragement. And if we can't encourage each other and charge each other with the pursuit of love and holiness and following Jesus, then we might as well join the Elks Lodge and make some friends over there. Because their social club looks a lot more fun than what we're doing. We must remain salty. So let's look at quote number three. Foreknowledge cannot be received from ghosts and spirits, cannot be had by analogy, cannot be found by calculation. It must be obtained from people, people who know the conditions of the enemy. When I was a kid, there was almost nothing cooler than Mike Tyson's punch-out, I'm old, I admit that, uh, but it was, it was awesome. I was Little Mac, and I was fighting all these amazing fighters, hoping someday to get to Mike Tyson at the end. Now, every time you fought a new fighter in the game, he would have some shtick, right? He would have, he would, the first time you fought the guy, he would pummel you into sand, and you'd go, man, what, what in the world? I don't know what it is. And what you had to do was figure out his pattern. Now, I could sit here and bang my head against the wall trying to figure out his pattern forever, or I could call my buddy who had Mike Tyson's punch out and be like, dude, what do I do against King Hippo? Be like, wait till that chubby guy lifts up his arms and then boom, 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 right in the belly, right? That's how it would work. And so he was my advisor because he had been there before. The salting provided within the church is in display in this idea, right? If we're going to be effective in the fight against the enemy, we have to do recon work with those who are familiar with the patterns and habits of the enemy. We have to find those who have fought the enemy before. Those people might be bloodied and bruised and maimed by the battle. But they've seen what we must know. They know where the dangerous places are. They know where the enemy lurks and waits for his prey. They know what weapons are most effective in the fight because they've used a lot of them and most of them probably failed. They know where to find rest from the battle when you're weary. We have to look to them to find hope that although the war might not be over until our death, that battles can be won. Church, we're filled with people that share your same struggle. Your struggle and your fight is not unique. The unique opportunity that the church has is to share the intelligence of the enemy, his movements, his schemes, to point out the places of ambush. And if you're serious about fighting sin, but you've never talked to anyone about your sin, then you aren't serious. The enemy is strongest in your life when you're isolated in your fight, when he's able to keep you in the dark, when you're fighting all of your fights for the very first time, feeling alone in the battle. You can take the knees out of sin by bringing your battle into the open, revealing the fight to a trusted friend within the church and share strategy. Seek to become allies with battle veterans who have been there before you in the war for your soul. The last quote is this number four Knowing the enemy enables you to take the offensive, knowing yourself enables you to stand on the defensive. I'm a little bit sad because American Idol's being canceled. Now, in full disclosure, we're part of the reason that American Idol's been being canceled because we haven't watched it in like four or five years, but just like the rest of America, apparently. Uh, But I really did enjoy when people would try out for American Idol. There was something that would always happen that just really confused me, and I could never get my head around the sociological like impact of how this would happen, but there was the person who would show up and be kind of good, but not good enough to make it, right? Then there was the person who was amazing and they totally made it. Then there was the person who stunk on purpose and it was funny because they wanted to get on TV. Then there was this weird person who was terrible, but really legitimately, like in the depths of their being, thought that they were Mariah Carey. Like, how does this happen? I can hear myself sing in church. Like, I know I'm no good. These people couldn't figure it out. They lied to themselves about who they were. They were delusional, right? The best offensive attack on sin in your life will never completely remove the threat. Our enemy in the war on sin will always be waiting, ready for you to rest, ready for you to become complacent, and ready for you to be overconfident. And you have to be vulnerable in places you will be vulnerable, most vulnerable even, in places that you didn't even know you were vulnerable. It is absolutely crucial that you have someone trusted in your life who knows you well enough to help you know yourself. You can't go into battle like a caterwauling American Idol contestant thinking that you're all that when you're not. You have to open yourself up to someone who will tell you when you need help and where you need help, where you're vulnerable, where they see sin creeping at the edges of your life looking to gain a foothold. Your pride is never easy for you to see, but it sounds like a sore thumb to someone who's close to you and loves you. Why do the worst arguments you have get generated from your family and maybe specifically your spouse? Because they know you best. They know your weaknesses. You are the most exposed before them. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. They see the ugliness that lurks below you, they see the soft spots where you're vulnerable. And we have to welcome that kind of look into our souls. We have to ask for help to see those weaknesses so we can address them, so we can weed out sin, so we can seek the Holy Spirit's help in seeing the chinks in our armor. We have to find a trusted, salty friend within the church and invite them to point out your soft spots. It's the only way to strengthen your defenses. Church, I believe what Jesus taught is true, that the fight against sin is vital to our health as Christians But the cost is worth it no matter how high it might seem in the moment. And we have to pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us in the fight against sin at the deepest level of our hearts. Pray that God would move in us and give us wisdom and strength to fight because the battle's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. For those of you in the room who have failed your fight, to those of you that are failing, to those of you that are in despair because you fought hard and long and still struggle with the same battles in your life. To those of you that think, I can't possibly be talking about your sin because it's too hard, it's too resilient, it's too real, it's too stubborn, it's too ugly. To those of you that are saying, I might never win. My message for you today is one of hope because the God who created all things and sustains them with his word knows you. He knows your story and he knows your fight. He knows your failure, and in spite of it all, he loves you more deeply than you can imagine. He loves you in spite of your failure. And because of his incredible love for you, he has pulled you close to him, in close into his deep, warm embrace. And there, in the safety of our father's care, he says this: "I know. I knew." Before I spoke the first light into being, I knew. I knew of you and of who you would be. And I knew how you would struggle and how you would fail, and I loved you anyway. I loved you so much I made a way for it to be right. His name is Jesus. Don't worry. The condemnation, the accusing guilt, the punishment, the wrath that you fear will not fall on you because it already fell on him. He never failed, but he took His your failure for you. So trust in him and rest. And fight again tomorrow because you're loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. God, we thank you for his faithfulness, his goodness. God, we thank you that he is worthy of our fight. God, we thank you that in our failure, which is continuing and ongoing, we can take rest because Jesus has been good and he has fought the fight. He has finished it on our behalf. God, thank you for Jesus. We love him. We pray this in his name. Amen.